helping our kids see the way that they naturally are as strengths, and then helping think about, okay, but what are some of the possible pitfalls that come along with this? So we can curb those, essentially. Those are some of the the really gifts we can give our kids as parents. You're likely familiar with the age-old debate of nature versus nurture. How much of our child's personality, temperament, and individual traits are predetermined, and how many are influenced by us and the environment. So today, we're going to explore this fascinating topic, and we're going to discuss how we can align our parenting approach with our child's genetic predispositions. Joining me today is author of the book, The Child Code, and professor of psychiatry at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, Dr. Danielle Dick. Dr. Dick is an internationally recognized and award-winning expert on genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. In this episode, we will unravel the insights pulled from Dr. Dick's extensive research in developmental behavior genetics, and we're going to discover how this knowledge can empower us to move beyond the traditional notion of molding our child and instead adapt our parenting strategies to harmonize with their unique wiring that could transform the way we approach parenting. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Danielle Dick here. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. So um, it's such a pleasure to be here. I, uh, In my day job, I essentially run a large addiction research center, but my passion is really in thinking about how we can apply research to parents. So I'm happy to be here with you. That's so perfect. And yeah, I think it's, I think I was so excited to have you come on because I, I really love when people can translate science to like into regular language that parents can understand and then go and use. And I feel like that is very much what you do. And I so appreciate it. Well, it's definitely become my passion. So a little bit about me. I'm a scientist. I've spent the past 25 years doing research on kids and families. And really, I study why some people are more at risk for developing problems with mental health challenges and substance use than others. And we know that part of it's in our genes and part of it's in our environments. And I really do a lot of research projects to figure out those pieces. So I run big gene identification projects to actually understand the biology and find genes genes involved in why some of us are more at risk than others. But I do a lot of studies of kids growing up. So what do kids who are at risk genetically, and really all of us carry some kind of risk, right? All of these Mm -hmm. things are on a bell curve. It's not an either or. But what does risk look like growing up and what kinds of environments either exacerbate or reduce risk? And then we ultimately try and use all this to develop, you know, prevention, preventative and interventions that parents can use. 
And I sometimes jokingly say that it was when I had my own son, I found myself raising the high-risk child that I study, and all of a sudden it made my research all the more meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And it also caused me to look around at the messages that parents were getting from the world, and I realized how much they didn't match so much of the research that I was engaged in. And that's really what led me to um, both to write my book, The Child Code, but also to try and do much more outreach in terms of talking with other parents. Yes. And can you talk, like, I I feel very similar. Like, that's a big reason why I started this podcast is I was like, what I am learning and what I see, like, in my sessions, behind the scenes, reading research, and what I'm like seeing as a parent, like the content I'm receiving as a parent, it's so discrepant. And I was like, we've got to bridge this gap. And so like, what are some of the things that you are seeing that were super not aligned with each other? So there is so much information out there for parents now. You know, we're inundated with parenting books and parenting podcasts and parenting magazines. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really struck me is that there's so much information for parents about what they should be doing with their kids. And I think that inadvertently what that can do is put a ton of pressure on us as parents, because if our kids are struggling in any way, we immediately, I think, convert that to what am I doing wrong? What should Mm -hmm. I be doing better? You know, I need to go find more information. I need to figure out what I should be doing. And Of course, it's really important. There's a lot of great material out there. There's a lot of great information in understanding good parenting practices and things that we can do. But the piece that is really getting ignored, I think, in a lot of that conversation is the fact that our kids are all wired differently. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a, a, a geneticist and neuroscientist. I study biology first. And so our kids are not, you know, blank slates that we get to write upon or, you know, we don't, we don't just get to mold them into exactly the little people that we want them to be, which I think sometimes those messages mm-hmm. about here's all the things you should do to have happy, resilient, well-adjusted children sometimes can cause us to think. So really what I focus on a lot is also understanding how all of our kids are wired differently. And so Mm -hmm. one size fits all parenting doesn't work. And what works for one child might not work for another child. So very often it's not that you as a parent is doing something wrong. It's that you just have a different child than your best friend's child with whom, you know, their favorite parenting technique works like a charm. and. So or a different really, child from your other child. like Totally. In my field, the running joke is um, that everyone is an environmentalist until they have their second child. And then they realize, <laughs> wait, I'm doing all the same things and this one is turning out totally differently. Oh, no. Or why did it work here and it's not working here? And I think you know that is where you have that powerful experience of, 
oh, they all come with their own little personalities and their own little dispositions. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of parenting stress comes when we are essentially pushing up against that. You know, I I sometimes say it's easier to work with mother nature than against mother nature. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I'm a big believer. And my book is really all about how by understanding your child's disposition, we can make it easier on ourselves as parents because we can think about what is likely to be most important or to work best for each of our unique little kiddos. Yes, I think that is so valuable. Like I can't even because and I really agree. I think everyone it's like your first when you have a second kid, you are you become an you become a scientist all of a sudden. It's like, "Oh, now I can compare to data points to get like next to each other versus like when we have one child, it's like we end up kind of assuming correlate like causation, but like yes. I did this, so this is the outcome. But it's not until you have two data points that you get to finally see, oh, I did this in one situation and a, and this is what happened. And I did the same thing in this situation and a different thing happened. Now, how do I explain that? It's like, it's like you become a little scientist. It is so easy to do as well in, in terms of fall into, you know, that um, parenting trap of thinking that, you know, everything we're doing is directly, you know, correlating with our kids' behavior. And I say that in the sense that, you know, even studying genetics, knowing what I do, when I had my son, he was such an easy infant. You know, Mm -hmm. he slept like a charm. He ate really easily. And of course, you know, in my very naive first child way, I thought, well, obviously, right? I, I have a PhD in psychology. I've read all of my books. Well, we don't, what's so hard about babies? Mm-hmm. And, you know, before you hate me, know that, you know, uh, around the time his temperament started showing up, I, it changed radically. But it's <laughs> that parenting myth where I thought, you know, oh, I'm a great parent and I have this great child. Of course, what really was going on is that I just had a really easy infant by chance, right? Mm-hmm. Who happened to be a good sleeper and a good eater. And I was lucky in that sense. But, you know, then when our kids struggle, very often we start attributing that to ourselves too. So I think yeah. it can it can be harmful in both ways in the sense that mm. when you believe like oh you know i'm the one who's contributing to the fact that my child is so delightful and and perfect it's easy to look at other parents and think well what is that parent doing wrong right we look at right. the child who's throwing a fit in target or the teenager who's talking back or whatnot and we think like oh that parent clearly needs to you know fill in our favorite parenting Mm -hmm. advice there. And so I think it can inadvertently lead us to be judgy with one another. You know, we we need support from each other when our kids are struggling uh, more than anything else. And, uh, And so I think that it can both, you know, unfortunately lead to parents being you know, judging with one another, but then us also being so judgmental with ourselves. If it's our child who is struggling, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to be doing? And feeling that others are judging us too. So that's one of the reasons that I, I really try and 
talk about and remind parents, okay, remember our kids all come with their own little dispositions and personalities um, because, you know, it's, uh, it, we're not working from, uh, from blank lumps of little clay that are just mm-hmm. up to our fabulous parenting to shape. Right. Which hopefully takes some of the pressure off because I can't tell you how many parents I work with that come to me feeling very defeated and very guilty and ashamed and embarrassed. And they feel as though they've failed because their kid is having a hard time. I mean, obviously I'm a psychologist and people tend to come to me when they've hit a threshold of like, things are really not working. Like they're really starting to fall apart a bit or they're feeling really bad. So I've got a self-selecting population that, you know, but but a lot of my work is helping parents kind of do this reframing is like, how do we think about, you know, not blaming ourselves for this and also not think about it's our responsibility to necessarily quote fix it either. Like a kid is going to, some kids are going to struggle more than others. Some kids, because they're wired in a way that doesn't match with the environmental expectations that our world has created for them. But also because sometimes they have to move through processes and it's messy. Um, I'm really curious, like, you know, when you're talking about your research or when you're um, working on, you know, your book, like what were the things that you were like, okay, these are some of the the really challenging things that I see kids sort of have that parents then really do tend to blame themselves for versus, you know, looking at their genetics, looking at their wiring. Yeah. So the interesting thing about studying genetics is that almost all behavior is genetically influenced. Almost everything is genetically influenced. I mean, we we are in fact products of our biology, right? Our it starts with an egg and a sperm and DNA and cells dividing, and so that's where everything starts. And then the environment starts getting layered onto that. And mm-hmm. so, honestly, you know, whether we're talking about you know anxiety and fear, which of course shows up even earlier as fearfulness and kids. So whether we're talking about that, whether we're talking about impulsivity, which of course then as kids get older can turn into conduct problems or defiance or ADHD, you know, um, whether we're talking about extroversion, how like extroverted or introverted kids are, which can lead to challenges, as you said, with when there's mismatches in the environment. Mm -hmm. I definitely ran into that with my son. I found that a lot of temper tantrums were when we were going out in public in places. Mm -hmm. And eventually I realized, oh, I'm far more extroverted than he is. You know, he was young. His his little toddler brain didn't have the ability to say it's extremely anxiety provoking when I'm put in front of, you know, huge groups of people and I don't know any of them because he's naturally more of a one-on-one kind of introverted person. And, you know, instead it just resulted in these massive temper tantrums and things. And so mm-hmm. I really think that it's across all areas of behavior, regardless of which one you might be struggling with and with your child. Um, so we know that that almost about 50% of the variation in almost any behavior you study is due to differences in kids' DNA. So meaning that about, you know, half of the differences between why some kids are more impulsive, more anxious, more sociable, more outgoing, whatever it might be, is due to differences in just the way that, you know, the genes they inherited, which impacted the way their brains were wired, which Mm -hmm. impacts the way they interact with the world. And 
that also impacts, of course, our relationship with them as parents. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most you know fascinating things out of uh, child psychology is the is the longitudinal studies that show kids' behavior shapes future parent behavior more than parent behavior shapes future kid behavior, Mm. which really shows that like we react to our kids for better and worse. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, and their behavior um, as much as kind of the, the rules and the things that we, you know, the scaffold around our children are shaping them. And I don't at all mean to suggest that they aren't both important. Of course, they clearly are. But the point is, it's this dynamic interaction between the things we do, the way they impact each of our differently wired kiddos, and then the way we respond to those children's interactions that start to create the dynamics that can make it harder for what some kids and make them, you know, struggle more. Mm-hmm. But to, to turn this to, you know, a place where um, I think parents can really get behind it and use it by understanding what that looks like, we can also use it to our advantage, right? We can mm-hmm. use how our kids are wired to think about where are the places where it's causing friction and then how do we get in front of that? Whether it's, you know, working with a clinical psychologist, um, someone like you or in your practice, or whether it's the practices that we put in place at home or both. Yeah. Yeah, that is an amazing like finding, I think, that what you just said. I like want to repeat it because it's so profound. So the study is showing that the way that the children's behavior is more predictive of parent behavior than par- um than the other way around. Yes. Exactly. And the interesting thing is there was a huge study that looked at this all around the world. So they were following people from I think it was like, you know, uh, I can't remember the details, but it was like eight to 15 countries and cultures. And they found this pattern everywhere in the world too. And I think it just shows how, you know, parenting Mm -hmm. is in many ways, though we have all these cultural differences, a universal experience in terms of interacting with all of our different kids. Yeah. But I think in a way, like, I can hear, it's like, it depends on how you read that. Like you could be both terrified by that. Like, oh God, um, it, you know, I, it, all these things that I've been trying to do don't matter. <laughs> all these like behavior charts and plans and things. It's like, you know, my kid is who they are and then I'm going to react and that's going to have what actually matters. But then I also think on the flip side, it's super empowering because if we can notice how we respond to our kids' behaviors and pay attention to the way that can activate a certain response in them or a behavior in them. We can change us so much more easily than we can change them. Like that's why the behavior charts are challenging because like you can change a kid's behavior for like a week, but like, are you going to really change it for that long? It's not really that easy to change a child's behavior or what I think your whole body of work is saying. It's not the behavior is just the, you know, the expression of something internal that's already there. Yes. And I don't want parents to come away, you know, feeling disempowered. I actually think this can be, as you say, very empowering Mm -hmm. because, you know, we sometimes talk about the reaction range. And by that, I mean, so if you imagine a child who's naturally far more introverted and um, then 
you are probably not going to be able to parent that child to want to be dancing on tables and be the center of attention, right? In a Mm -hmm. large crowd. But what you can do is parent that child to the point where they can make it in a work setting where they have to interact with others at school or eventually one day, you know, as we think about launching them into the world on their own at work or otherwise. And so the reaction range is sort of, you can work with a child's temperament and you're probably not going to take, you know, a again, a very introverted child and make them want to suddenly be the center of attention. But you can teach them skills such that they don't just want to spend all their time in their room by themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it is managing expectations, but also thinking about how do you um, help your children see their dispositions as strengths and not as liabilities. And so I'll talk about this extroversion, introversion one, because I think it's sort of an easy thing for parents yeah. to wrap their head around, because we also kind of know where we tend to fall on that dimension pretty easily as well. Um, and so something like, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm very extroverted. And when I wasn't in t- being intentional about it and thinking about the fact that, you know, it, my son is far more introverted. He's now a teenager and he is still the person that prefers to spend time with a couple close friends. But when I was putting him in what was my idea of really fun Saturday mornings together, you know, to go to play groups and to meet up with folks at the parks or, you know, the local museums, it was very anxiety provoking for him. And so it was essentially, and as I mentioned, it was creating all this tension at home, meaning, you know, we're we're having a nice little breakfast and I say, oh, we're going to go to the park and meet up with so-and-so and so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so. And And next thing I know, he's, you know, sweeping the cereal bowl off the table and saying, I'm not going to go. Or, you know, we've all had these moments with our child. Mm -hmm. Then you dig in and say, you know, that's not appropriate behavior. And, you know, we already have plans to do this and all the things that lead nowhere good. Um, And so when I got in front of it, I realized I was essentially doing the equivalent of throwing a child who couldn't swim in the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. Whereas once I realized this, I went, okay, so he feels really anxious when he's put into big groups of people he doesn't know. Well, instead, we started doing play groups with another child and parent. And then he's much better. He gets to know that child. Okay, now we introduce another child. Now he gets to know that individual. And then eventually we work up to the point where it isn't, you know, a huge catastrophe where now we're going to a birthday party with a lot of children. But it's a learned skill for some children because they're not naturally wired that way. For Mm -hmm. others, you know, if you have a child who's more extroverted, you would never even be thinking about having to have this. It would feel easy, right? You grab your kiddo, you run to the park, everybody's excited. But, you know, sometimes when we have that family friction, when we can step back and look at it, it's due to a mismatch between the environment we're creating for that child and their natural disposition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I sometimes say, If you had a child who was doing poorly in math, you know, you wouldn't think that punishing them, right, or just forcing them to do more multiplication was going to suddenly make them a great math student. If they don't understand the concepts, you have to teach them that before they can, you know, then apply them. And 
with behavior, very often we just think either we're going to punish bad behavior or we expect children's behavior to be at a certain point. But for kids, some of them are just wired in ways that they need a little more teaching and help to get to that point. Yes. I think that is such a valuable way of framing it because I think most of the time when I'm working with families and we're dealing with like objectively challenging behaviors, like objectively they're not functioning, you know, those yes. behaviors don't function well. Right. But I, I hear all the time, like those aren't acceptable behaviors. They can't do that. It's just, they need to learn that, that that's not allowed. And I agree, but the key word there is learn, right? They have to learn that that's not allowed and they have to really, it's not about learning to inhibit a behavior. It's actually learning to develop all the skills necessary to engage in a different behavior. And I think that's where we often get it wrong. We see a kid hit and we say we have to teach them not to hit. Okay. Well, if you want the outcome to be my kid isn't hitting when they're mad, we have to think about what behaviors are we actually going to teach instead. And that's where we can start. I just think that is a much more useful frame. Absolutely. And so I'm a professor in a school of medicine. And so hence, you know, I think of medical analogies, Uh but we wouldn't just want to treat the symptoms of a disease. If someone came to us and is having problems, we wouldn't just want to treat the different symptoms. We ideally want to treat the underlying cause Mm -hmm. so the symptoms go away. Mm -hmm. There is a parallel here in parenting. We are very often treating the symptoms, the things that we see, meaning the temper tantrums, the talking back, the, you know, what we might call as like not acceptable behavior. But there is usually an underlying cause there. And, you know, and in my book, I break it down and I call them the three E's sometimes because it helps me to sort of, you know, keep everything straight. So we talked a little bit about extroversion, but the other part is effortful control. And um, so because we know that, you know, some kids are more impulsive and risk taking just naturally. And mm-hmm. that's another place where that might be the child that gets upset and suddenly hits the other child. But, you know, it's not necessarily because they're a bad child, a mean child, because they don't understand that hitting is okay, is because their brain is just wired more toward fast, quick, impulsive reactions. And so learning how do you manage that? How do you get those skills? Once you work on that, then the hitting will reduce. But if you're just focused on the hitting, then that impulsivity is going to show up in kind of, you know, different sorts of other ways too. Um, mm-hmm. The anxiety piece is another one, the fearfulness piece. That, that's another, you know, the third, that's the third E is emotionality. Some kids are just quicker to big emotions and they have these responses that seem, you know, out of proportion as we might view Mm -hmm. them to the situation. And so whether that's, um, you know, a hugely fearful response or whatnot, all kids get a little bit afraid sometimes, but the child that's hiding behind your leg all the time, you know, if, um, there's someone, you know, a friendly little dog that comes by, not a, not a snarling kind of dog, Mm -hmm. right. You know, but they, they have these disproportionate emotional responses and it could be fearful or sometimes it's the act 
acting out responses. And, um, and very often what we do is we treat that symptom and we feel like, well, we need to punish or we need to say, you know, no, absolutely come out here and, you know, say hello or say it's okay or pet the dog or whatever it might be. Um, but we're not actually getting at how do you address that underlying difference in the way that they're wired so that they can have the skills to do that. Yeah. Can you talk more about the emotionality piece? Because I think that, you know, I, I think parents, when they think about extroversion, introversion, that, that like, you know, those, that sort of spectrum, that's really relatable. Like we all kind of know, like you said, like we all kind of have a good sense of where we fall on that spectrum. And it's usually outwardly pretty easy to sort of see with our kids where they might fit. And even with effort for effortful control, right? Usually if a kid has a lot of skills in effortful control, they are a pretty regulated, you know, predictable, composed kid. They could follow directions. They can inhibit their impulses. They can really plan, you know, and the kids who can't look predictably like they can't, like they just have so much trouble inhibiting behaviors. The emotionality piece, I think gets a lot more for whatever reason, difficult for parents because, and maybe it's because when a kid has really outsized emotions, they trigger our emotions as well. And so I think the idea of thinking about a child's emotionality on a spectrum as well is like, okay, my kid has high emotionality or, you know, is lower on that, their range is lower, is a really helpful way to actually depersonalize our kids' emotions because we that one is very difficult to separate from. It is extremely difficult. And I had a highly emotional son. And, you know, these things are genetically influenced. And of course, it's not just our children who have dispositions. It's us as well, too. Uh-huh. And uh, and certainly I am someone who, you know, I um, had very strong, big feelings when I was a child. Now as a grown-up, you learn the skills and you regulate, right? Mm-hmm. But nobody knows how to push your buttons like your your children. And, um, and so that is a hard one because very often it does produce an emotional response in the parent especially if you are higher on emotionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we sometimes, you know, when I'm talking with multiple parents, talk about that's why it can also feel like sometimes children have a better fit with one parent than another parent. And that could be because either they're matched, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, so I definitely understood my son's emotionality because I remembered feeling that way as a small mm-hmm. child, but it also pushed my buttons in terms of I had to be very intentional for him to not evoke that kind of more re- emotional response in me as well, mm-hmm. which of course makes us not our best parenting selves. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, um, his father, it was a very different setup where there's certain things that, you know, he just couldn't understand these disproportionate emotional outbursts. And so that was more puzzling, confusing to him. Um, And so, you know, I, I just mentioned this because sometimes it can be a source of tension between parents too, because they see things differently. um, They evoke different responses in the parents, et cetera. But to go back to the kiddos, the challenging piece with really emotional children is that 
they tend to be the ones that we most want to respond with punishment. You know, that's not okay. You can't do that. We are very much treating the symptoms there Mm -hmm. per my previous analogy. And that is the equivalent of punishing a child who can't do algebra and Mm -hmm. thinking it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course, as you might imagine, if you're punished because you're not good at algebra and you just really don't understand it, that's going to go one of two ways. You know, you're either going to be really mad for constantly being punished for something or, or maybe both, you're going to feel really bad about yourself. What's wrong with me that I can't do this and I keep getting Mm -hmm. into trouble? And, you know, that's really these children who have outsized emotions, that that's just the way their brains are wired. It's mm-hmm. very often frightening to them, too. And so now they're getting all this negative feedback from the world, from parents, sometimes from peers or from teachers. And it both can make them, it can either make them very angry at those around them, which can lead to more behavior problems, or it can lead them to feel like, you know, lesser than like what's wrong with me. Um, because it it is something that often it's a kind of a disposition. It's not a choice. And that's, I think a key thing for parents to remember. And that was one of the things that helped me in working with my son is to remember, you know, it feels like they're being manipulative or they're choosing to be bad Mm -hmm. or choosing to engage in behavior that you will have previously discussed is not okay. And I think that remembering actually, you know, this is their biology working against them in that moment can help us as parents to keep our calm. Yeah. I think that that is so important because like you said at the beginning, right? Like when our kids do something, feel something enormous, whatever, if it's an emotion, expression, or a behavior. Um, and we have a really big reaction. Maybe it's because it made us really mad that they did that. Maybe it's also just because we're terrified. We're like, why is this happening, right? Like in the panic of, I've got to shut this down. Like this is not, I have to make this stop, right? Yes. Um, that can actually, like you're saying, activate more of it or have other kinds of consequences in the long run in terms of their self-esteem or their sense of self or their, you know, belief that they can be like loved, you know, like, and seen as good by the world. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, do you have any thoughts on how to support parents? Cause like, I imagine knowing our own kind of genetic predispositions and our own, temperament and biological underpinnings helps a little bit there. Yes. And so for those who are interested, I actually have surveys in my book, short little questionnaires that you can fill out on your children and on yourself. And, uh, you know, I sometimes kid around that the first part of the book is a little bit about the science behind how genes and the environment come together to impact kids' behavior. And if you don't really care about the science and you're just willing to take my word for it, you can kind of skip those, you know, a couple of chapters. But then it's the part the parents, I think, really want, right? Which is to help them figure out 
where their child falls on some of these key dimensions, right? And I, I, to help make it manageable, talk about these three key dimensions of extroversion, emotionality, and effortful control, because those tend to be the places that whether we realize it or not, are creating many of the frustration and friction points in our families. Mm -hmm. And so by understanding where your child falls and then where you fall, then what you can think about and, you know, really kind of what I walk through is different parenting strategies work better for different types of kids. Mm -hmm. And when we bring our own dispositions into it too, sometimes there are easy matches between parents and kids. And that's when parenting just feels easy. And I will tell you, you know, my, um, I'm a blended family now and my stepdaughter is one of those highly agreeable, what we might call very easy kids. I didn't know they existed. Uh, you know, I mean, I know all behavior is on a bell curve. So scientifically, I knew there must be those kids at that upper end of the distribution. I just didn't have one and none of my siblings or friends had them. And, uh -huh. uh, and so I can get now, because I have a firsthand window into how sometimes parenting just feels easy. And that can be because you have a child who has a, you know, fairly laid back, easy temperament, um, right? They're not highly emotional. They're good on, on effortful control. They are probably not highly extroverted or introverted. So they can kind of go with the flow either way. Um, Sometimes there's just an easy match between parents and kids that helps. So I talked about, you know, if you're the extroverted parent and you have the extroverted child and everybody's excited to go to the park and go to the playground and, you know, go to sporting events, that can make parenting feel easy. But there's a lot of places where mismatches can make it difficult. And mm -hmm. so that's why, you know, I'm a big knowledge is power. Clearly I'm a researcher, but I'm also all about how can we take all the, honestly, billions of dollars in, you know, research that's been generated and apply it to make our lives easier. And so I think, you know, by kind of filling out some surveys or even just thinking about where your child falls on some of these key dimensions, can allow you then to get in front of it and think about, okay, what are the pieces that are most important for my child that might be causing these friction points? And how do we focus on those? What are the parenting strategies that are going to be most important for helping my child develop this lagging skill that they might have? And, and that's really how I like to think about it. Highly emotional children or highly impulsive children, what they have are lagging skills in terms of it just doesn't come as naturally to them, or maybe they're going to grow into it at a later stage than other kids. And that's why it can create some of these challenges with uh, parenting. Yeah. And are there ways that you recommend parents support that skill development? Absolutely. And so, um, so, you know, even if we, if we take the extroversion introversion one, cause that's an easy one. And, and it's one that I use sometimes because it's also one that we can start with because it, there doesn't tend to be a lot of judgment from the world one way or another. Yeah. Right. Um, it feels, it no feels safe and neutral. It feels safer, right? So we'll start with that one. Um, but, you know, it, it can inadvertently lead to challenges, meaning, so if, you know, if you took my much more introverted child and I am the one who's constantly trying to take him places that are not a good fit, you know, 
before I had realized that and kind of gotten in front of the problem, you could see how that would play out in a not good way, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's essentially like, well, why why can't you? Like, why are we fighting? First of all, you know, it's causing all this tension. It's causing fighting at the home and the family. But it's also, you know, well, why why can't you go with all these people and do all these things? Or, you know, it starts to lead the child to think they're lesser. It starts to lead the parent to think what's wrong with my child. And so an easy example here is, you know, okay, so you need to actually slowly introduce social settings. Um, Introverted children also tend to need more downtime between activities before they're, you know, ready to regroup, et cetera. On the other hand, if you're a more introverted parent with an extroverted child, it can be exhausting. And so, you know, I talk about strategies to figure out how to both fulfill your child's needs for lots of interaction, but also as a parent to support your mental health. Um, And Mm -hmm. so um, one of the things that I know some parents who are in that situation do is they find classes where we happen to have a little uh, Saturday morning class at our nature center And there was someone teaching the kids and there were tons of kids and they were running around learning about a different insect or bird or something every week. And, you know, this was one of my dear friends. They could sit in the corner and read a book and recharge and know their child is doing their thing. They didn't feel the need to be hanging out with all the other parents. They could, you know, quietly get some of their time and their child got what they needed. So Mm. those are just kind of some examples of how you can find ways. And um, now let's talk about, for example, the emotionality one, one of the more challenging ones. Often our default, or, or even I'll say for kids who are not extremely high on this, Sometimes the kind of classic two levers that we use, rewards and consequences, right? Um, That finding the right balance of those things can work pretty well in terms of shaping kids' behavior. It's not going to work well for kids who are extremely high on emotionality. They're going to end up getting, you know, feeling like they're being punished all the time. There's far more consequences going on than rewards. That's not good for anyone's mental health. And so, you know, as I know, you know, there's strategies that parents can use to essentially work with kids who are higher on emotionality. And they really, you know, revolve around how do you catch kids when they're being good? How do you reward that? But also, how do you help them learn to manage those really strong feelings? Um, How can you kind of help their skill development in that sense? So that's a place where, you know, those are a couple examples of how by understanding where your child falls on different dimensions... Um, and you know, if you're interested, there's a lot more about this in the book. There's kind of the how-to of like kids with these um, temperaments, these strategies work better. Mm-hmm. If your child falls over here, you might really want to be focusing on this piece and not worried so much on this piece because you know, as parents, I feel like so often we're trying to do it all, yeah. and it often doesn't work, and it's exhausting for us. And so. Mm-hmm. That's where I think the whole understanding how your child is wired can allow you to get in front of problems yes. and, and help you focus on what matters most. Yes. Cause and it's like it's like if you have um how do I usually say like a roadmap, right? Like if you have a roadmap to your child, you know, like you can sort of see this is what they're sensitive about. This is how their nervous system responds to things. This is the things that are really stimulating for them. These are the 
things that they seek out, they enjoy, they're regulating for them. Like these are the kinds of things that I love to help parents do is like kind of map out their kid. And it sounds like you're doing a really similar thing kind of with these, these like three E's. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Then you have, then you have a frame, like now you can say, oh, like I know what tools to pull for these different things because too often I just feel like parents are told and, and listen, like, I think, I don't think this is really parents. I think this is a really hard challenge right now in the world of parenting because there are so many sort of people putting out these sort of rules and then people are like, okay, I'm going to follow this model and I'm just going to follow these rules. But it's like, we can't just pick a model because we like the person teaching the model and it makes sense to us. We have to look at our kid first and then say like, what is going to be the thing that's going to help them? And sometimes it's not the things that help us, which is super confusing, right? And it's, it's, we got to individualize it. Absolutely. And so in the field of medicine, we talk about precision medicine, and there's literally billions of dollars now that are going into precision medicine. And the whole idea is that when most of us go to the doctor, we go because something is wrong. You know, some of us are good with our preventative care, but most doctor's appointments are because something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And then there's this trial and error process of trying to figure out what's wrong and how do we fix it? And, you know, that's a costly process to everybody involved. And there's, again, a parallel here with parenting. Very often we reach out when we feel like, oh, something is going wrong here. Mm -hmm. But we can get in front of that because by understanding, you know, how our kids are wired, right? We know a ton about genetics and biology now and brain development. We know all of our kids are different. And when we parent with that in mind, when we sort of start thinking about our child and how they're wired, we can get in front of problems and reduce the likelihood that they're going to blow up into full-blown problems um, before they've even started. And, you know, as much as I, I talk about genetics, because obviously I'm uh, trained in both genetics, but... I always also want to remind parents, it's the whole DNA is not destiny. So mm -hmm. our kids have dispositions, but that does not mean they are destined to develop particular problems. You know, it's uh, it does mean that it might be a bit of a road in front of you, as you said, for helping your child learn things that don't come to them naturally. Um, it's the whole, you know, parenting is a marathon, not a sprint kind of thing. You know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna suddenly uh, teach them overnight. Probably, there's not gonna be mm -hmm. a quick fix. But to know that by working with your child and then slowly teaching them these skills, you know, it might not come naturally to them, but they will learn and they certainly, you know, the environment still plays a big role in shaping kids' outcomes. Yeah. I think that's so, so important and validating, right? Like, because we, you are, yes, I think it is critical that we, we appreciate the fact that our kid is born who they are and we don't get to pick and we don't mold them. Like we don't like get to, they're not this empty vessel that's like our job to fill. And yes. 
that I think coming into parenthood and going and approaching your child from that vantage point is really important because I think it allows us to to be curious observers and sort of detectives rather than, you know, the, you know, the the creator, which is a good place to, I think being the curious observer is a better place to parent from. It's just less, less stress, less pressure, right? But in that curious observer observer role, it's not like you're a passive observer that just watches your child helplessly. <laughs> you know, you're a huge person, you're a huge role in the interplay. Because development is a dynamic interplay. You said that earlier, and I think that's very accurate. Like we're doing a dance from the minute our kid is born to the end of our lives, we're gonna be doing a dance with them. So what dance do you want to dance? And we're like it, it all matters, but it, it, the intentionality, I think, and the sort of radical acceptance that sometimes this yes. dance isn't going to be that fun or it's going to yes. be hard. But I matter. The way I move matters. The way my kid moves, the way I respond to how my kid moves matters. It's not irrelevant. Absolutely. And, you know, um, there's the analogy of the shepherd and the flock, right? Meaning, we we sometimes think that it's our job to create the sheep, right? We're we're I mean we might have physically created them, but the the sheep are there and they're doing their own thing. Now we have a lot of influence on like what pasture we put them in, right? Do they have grass where they can grow, or do they have none so they die off, or you know? But but it's a matter of like we can determine the environmental conditions that can help teach them skills they don't have, that can essentially give them opportunities to express their strengths, um, that we can help them learn to see who they are as, you know, a wonderful gift. I sometimes think that that's one of the most important things that we can do as a parent. So does your risk-taking child feel like, Wow, you know, your parent is celebrating you as like, oh my gosh, you have so much energy. You're doing so many things. Like, wow, it's a great to try lots of things in life. Okay, we need to be careful though a little bit because think about it. If you try jumping off a, out of a high tree, you could break your leg, and so we don't want that to happen. But so you can help mold and scaffold, you know, their experiences where they are embracing the things you're helping, you know, we sometimes say uh, reduce potential pitfalls while helping them achieve their potential. Um, <laughs> your, your child that is, you know, maybe higher on anxiety, do they essentially see that as like, oh, I'm just such an anxious, awful person. I get nervous all the time. It's like, well, you know what? It's good to have a little bit of anxiety. It means you're going to prepare for things and you're going to study for things. And often people who are paying more attention are more empathetic and they're really good friends. And those are all amazing qualities. But it does mean that sometimes if you think about things too much and you get stuck in that, you know, rut in your head of worry, 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 then it can cause problems. So how are we going to learn to identify if it's leading to problems and, you know, teach skills so that it doesn't turn into problems mm -hmm. while at the same time seeing like it's okay to have those feelings, right? Like they, they can be good things too. Yeah. And so I think helping our kids see the way that they naturally are as 
strengths and then helping think about, okay, but what are some of the, you know, the possible pitfalls that come along with this so they can, you know, we can curb those essentially. Um, Those are some of the the really gifts we can give our kids as parents. Yeah. And then, cause then I I like that because I think separating, seeing things as like our child's strengths plus potential pitfalls, the pitfalls aren't our kid, right? In that, you know, in that metaphor, like the child is the strength, like the the child's attributes are seen as the, as the good. And yes, there can be outcomes of those attributes that could have challenges attached to them, but those challenges aren't the kid. And I think that is a very different way of thinking about a child, right? Instead of saying, you know, my kid is tough there, my kid, you know, can't do these things, my kid, you know, is, you know, there's a whole bunch of range of the way people describe their kids, but even like an anxious kid, um, I work with a lot of families who have kids with anxiety and it's not like their parents have tons of empathy for it. Um, it's not, you know, I think it's easier to be, have empathy for like the frightened child than the angry child. Right. But that's, there's still, that's just that emotionality piece of just what emotion is getting expressed. But the, the highly anxious child we have empathy for, but we also feel like we have to rescue it. And we feel like we have to, like, we don't think like a lot of times we get, we have trouble communicating a lot of confidence that they can cope with those feelings. And so being able to say, hey, you have a lot of feelings about this. You worry about this. You pay attention to this stuff. You feel things in a strong way. All that's fantastic. Those are your strengths. And when you avoid doing these things, you you don't learn how to believe you can do them. So we got we to gotta practice, right? So yes. I love that. And, you know, you talked about separating the child from some of these challenges that they might be having. And so, you know, one of the things that you might do in your practice, but, you know, I talk about a little bit in the book is a strategy for helping the child see that differentiation. Um, And to learn that is, you know, naming that big emotion that they might be experiencing as something. And so that then they can see like, you know, oh, let's say it's Bert, right? And maybe Bert for one child might be overwhelming anxiety and Bert for another child might be when they get so mad. And so when you're talking to your child and you're doing this kind of collaborative problem solving with them to think like, okay, so what are we going to do, right? So now you you and your child are collaborating. You're on the same page. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do when Bert shows up, right? Because mm-hmm. then it's a like, okay, your child is also recognizing there's things I can do to address this, this thing, meaning either, you know, high, like anger or, you know, this sort of impulsive feelings or anxiety, you know, when I feel this coming, right. When Bert shows up, Mm -hmm. what am I going to do? And then, you know, you talk about the skills and you practice the skills and they can then start to make that association of like, Oh, here comes Bert, right? Oh, that's right. I need to take some deep breaths, right? Or like, yeah. oh, you know, and and they can go I am into not strategy, Bert, right? Exactly. I am, I am not, not Bert. We're going to work on managing Bert. <laughs> I love that. I actually do that a lot, a lot with kids in my practice. Um, this sort of like personifying the the worry part of my brain or the angry part of my brain, and like giving it a name, making it feel very 
not so scary. Um, yes. A metaphor that I often use with kids that I think is super helpful actually is, are you, are you familiar with Harry Potter? Do you, do, is that yes. a big thing for you guys? Okay. So there's, I think it's in the third book, but there's the Professor Lupin comes and he teaches them the ridiculous curse. Um or he teaches them the 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 spell to get rid of the boggart. And it's yes. the boggart basically shows you your worst fear. Like it 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 manifests in your biggest fear. And so the way that you disarm it is you picture it something, the, the silliest thing in your mind that you can think of, and you say ridiculous. And the boggart turns into this like goofy version of the thing. And so I love showing that clip to kids in my practice. And like sort of having them so personify the worry part of their brain. Um, and I do this for anger too, you know, whatever it is. And a lot of times I'll ask the kid to describe like, well, what do they look like? You know, who is, you know, what, what's imagine them. And usually there's something kind of big and strong and powerful and a little intimidating um, because it's a big part of their brain that takes over a lot. And so one of the things that we do is we have to give it the ridiculous curse and, or the ridiculous spell. And we have to make it silly and goofy and tiny and squeaky and something that you can overpower really easily and you're in charge of it. And you can boss it back and say like, you need to sit down, can chip, shush, I'm talking now. You know, like you, ha- so it helps them to sort of feel really power- ov- like powerful over this part of their brain. Oh, um, I love that. And that made me think of that because that's, it's fun because kids, I love Harry Potter. Kids, I, you know, it. it's funny that you say that. I remember I like bought all the Harry Potter books, like when they came out and was like obsessed with it. And now I was suddenly thinking, oh my gosh, how long ago was that now? I know. It's been a while. <laughs> when you were describing that, I was like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember that in the book, but gosh, how many years ago now was that? So. I know. <sighs> but it's, it's timeless. I know there's been some controversy, but I do think that the, the story is is magical quite literally, but it makes me happy. But, but I think it's actually a really useful thing for kids, which it just made me think about it when you were talking about that. But if people want to read your book, learn more about your research, where can they find you? Yes. So you can go to my website, which is danielledick.com, where I try and put out a lot of free resources for parents. And I write blogs on Medium and Psychology Today. And you can find all of that there at my website. Or you can go to thechildcode.com or Amazon or other places where books are sold. And uh, The Child Code, as I mentioned, it has uh, both information to understand your child a little bit better, but then surveys where you can actually try and figure out your child. And then a whole section about what kind of parenting strategies work best, depending on where your child falls on different dimensions. So you can learn more at thechildcode.com. That's amazing. Thank you so much. for This is so, so fun talking with you. Absolutely. It was so fun being here. Thanks, Sarah. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts and your feedback with me by scrolling down to the ratings and review section on your Apple podcast app or whatever app you're listening on. And let me know what you think of this episode or the show in general. Your support means the absolute world to me. And just a simple tap of five stars can make a real impact in how this show gets reached by parents everywhere. So thank you so much for listening and don't be a stranger.